0: We have been working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, We'll be in chapter 11 this morning. And it's important for us to understand as we read the Old Testament, we're not just reading bare facts. uh, And it's not exhaustive either. Uh, We're reading the Word of God, and God is using this historically accurate account Of what is going on and what has happened in God's world to communicate to God's people uh, aspects of His character, uh, but also to shape and transform the hearts of God's people. We've seen uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel have been pointing us uh, to the King that God has chosen, the one who will rule and reign over his people and on his throne forever and ever and ever. And it's important for God's people, as we're hoping for and anticipating and and, and longing for this king to come, uh, that as we look for God's king, we know uh, the character qualities to expect. Who are we looking for? And as God's people, prior to Jesus coming, as different kings would arise, how do they evaluate and determine, is this the one that God has promised? Is this the the one who will sit and rule and reign on God's throne forever? Who will perfectly demonstrate and show his character in each and everything that he does, ruling with justice and righteousness and equity and mercy and grace? Or is this one who falls far short? Over the last two chapters, it would seem that David has really grasped and is fulfilling this picture for us of what the king should look like. We've seen him demonstrate and show to us uh, the kindness of God, both demonstrating the kindness of God to enemies within the people of God and him showing and demonstrating the kindness of of God to enemies outside of the, the people of God. But what we're gonna see in the chapter this week is that David falls far, far short. Uh, As as much as he emulated and reflected to us the character of our God in these last two chapters, he's at the complete other end of the spectrum in this chapter. As David, in the role of God's king, dishonors his God, dishonors the, the role that he has but also shows us that David needs a true and greater king. He needs a Savior. He needs a Redeemer. And so do you and I. So, if you would, look with me. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. This is on page 262. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. We're going to be looking at the uh, the whole chapter together this morning. Uh, Verses 1 through 27. So if you would, follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and said, Is this not, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. When she returned to her house, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. When Joab sent Uriah to David, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the pra- place where he knew there were valiant men. And the of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, "'When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, "'Why did you go so near the city to fight?' Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But... We drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, She lamented over her husband, and when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word transforms. We thank you that your word is, is living, that it's active that You use it to, to cut deep into the hearts of Your people, exposing for us the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And as we see a man who tried to conceal what was going on in his own heart, we pray that this would not be true for us this morning. Holy Spirit, do Your work. Show us our hearts, however dark they may be, That the light of Christ might shine more brightly. We would hope fully in Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, if you want to keep notes this morning, I want you to draw three small little pictures so you can keep a a tally underneath them. One, I want you to draw a little house for place. So draw a house for place. I want you to uh, draw... Uh, a heart, to listen for heart. I want you to draw a little eye, like an eyeball, to listen for eye. So listen for place, for heart, for eye. Because what we're going to see is that God's true and forever king must be the one who is in the right place. He must be the one who has the right heart and he must be the one who sees with the right eyes. First, let's see how God's true and forever king must be the one who is in the right place. Notice how this starts. In verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Where are kings supposed to be? What is the place that kings should find them in? Not just the kings of Israel, but the kings of the nations, all kings. The place where they are to be is in battle. That's what it tells us. We just finished up a chapter where God's people had been attacked by the Ammonites. Joab attacked and, and, uh, and was beginning to conquer and defeat the Ammonites and Rabbah, But it, set, it tells us in the end of chapter 10 that he pulled back. Most likely what was going on is the weather got too bad to finish that, uh, that battle. And so once the spring came, the weather and the climate changed, they were able to re-engage the battle. This is how the cycle went. But we also shouldn't think that the king would have just gone out all by himself. What's the point here? The king would have gone out with his people. You see, the place where the king needs to be first, we see in this passage, is with his people. But notice, that's not where David is. Look, it's a time when kings went out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But where is David? That's what it tells us that David remained at Jerusalem. The kings of the other nations got this, but the king of Israel? Why would the king of Israel not understand this? Remember, whose throne does David rule on? It's the throne of God. God is the true king. We must remember that. The king of Israel is not the ultimate one in the land. It's God. He rules under God always and is to reflect the character of his God. Where do we see the true king in the midst of this? Notice what... Uriah says as he recounts what's going on down in verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. The ark, Joab and Israel are on the battlefield. The ark, remember when we've talked about this before? It's the symbol of God's special presence among His people. Where is the true king? Where the true king should be with his people, present among them as they battle and wage war against those who have opposed God and opposed his anointed. But where is David? Not with his people. You think a shepherd would know and recognize and understand this. What kind of shepherd abandons his sheep? What kind of shepherd sends his sheep off all alone by themselves? God doesn't do that. Yet here we see David not in the right place. He's not with the people of God whom God has entrusted to Him to care for, to shepherd, to tend after, and to represent Him to them. Where's God? With the people. Where's David? In Jerusalem. I don't know if you've seeing the movie Frozen 1 or 2. It doesn't really matter. There's a lovable little snowman in Frozen named Olaf. Something to know about Olaf is Olaf likes warm hugs, which is kind of funny for a, a snowman to like warm things. But you also learn something in the first movie about Olaf is that Olaf doesn't really quite understand where the place where snowmen should be. The place where snowmen thrive. Where do snowmen thrive? Snowmen thrive in the winter. Snowmen thrive in the snow. Snowmen thrive in the cold. But where does Olaf dream and long and sing about being? In summer. Bathing on the beach, sitting in the sand. And at one point, as Olaf is singing this song about existing in the wrong place and dreaming and longing to be in summer, Kristoff asks Anna, "Should we tell him? Should we tell him that summer's the wrong place for snowmen to be? When snowmen are in the wrong place, and snowmen find themselves in summer, they melt." They die, they wilt, they wither. Here, David, like Olaf, is forgotten. He's forgotten where he thrives, he's forgotten where he was created, and where he has been redeemed to exist and live, not just with God's people, but with God. Do you remember the David? of chapter 6 in 2 Samuel, who saw it as being so incredibly important to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. Why? Because he recognized and understood the place for God to be was in the midst of His people. And David, recognizing and understanding his role as the king of God to direct and model discipleship, faithfulness, righteousness before the people, so God needs to be in our midst as He's promised that we would worship and walk with Him in faithfulness and righteousness. And David rejoices and celebrates the fact that God is coming to be His special presence in the midst of His people. But what about about David now? Where is God's special presence? Well, Remember, Uriah has already told us God's special presence isn't in Jerusalem. God's special presence has gone to be with his people. But David doesn't seem concerned about that. David doesn't seem concerned anymore that God's presence is away from him. You see, the king in rightly fulfilling his role should model for the people that wherever God goes, I will go. Wherever the presence of God might be, I long for and I will do whatever is necessary to draw near and close and abide and be with my God. But here, David, for some reason, he's become complacent. It doesn't seem to matter anymore to him whether God is near him or not, whether he's dwelling in the presence of God or not. David has forgotten the place that he needs to be to thrive. David remains in Jerusalem and is content to be far and distant from his God, not to pursue him or delight in him or desire him. You see, we're already beginning to see how David is falling short in this passage. Being God's king, God's forever king. When he comes, we would expect to find one who will always be present with God's people. Remember, when Jesus, the one that that David's reign and his line is pointing to, When Jesus shows up, he sees God's people as sheep with no shepherd. And Jesus' heart goes out to them. And he grieves over them because they are without a shepherd. Here we see David not caring that his people are with no shepherd, but Jesus. Jesus is pursuing and gathering and going after His sheep, doing whatever is necessary to bring them to Himself that He would be with them. Remember, we looked at this uh, last week even, the last words that Jesus says to His disciples before He ascends to heaven. As He tells them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. I want you to go forth to the nations making disciples, teaching them what I have commanded you. But then he says, I will be with you always, always. The true and perfect and forever king will never leave or forsake or abandon his people. He will do whatever is necessary, even if it means taking on flesh to suffer and die and be rejected so that his people may dwell always with him. Thank goodness that Jesus is the true and forever King and Redeemer and Savior of God's people, the true anointed one, and not David. But also, as we think about Jesus, even from from a young age, His desire always to be present with His Father, to be present with God. Remember what probably was one of the most scary times for Mary and Joseph. Mary, I mean, an angel's appeared to you and told you you are going to bear God's son. And at 12 years old, they can't find him. Oops. But once they go back to Jerusalem and find out where Jesus is, they discover him in the temple. And Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house. Jesus recognizes the need for the true and perfect man to dwell always in the presence of God. But also what we reveal what the scriptures reveal to us and show us about Jesus is how close he is with the Father. In fact, Jesus is these. Revealing more about himself, more about his character. Listen to what he says to his disciples in John 14. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. See, Jesus, as the Son of God, is in union and communion with His heavenly Father, always, inseparable, from eternity to eternity. This is the one who has become flesh for us. This is the one who has become our king. This is the one who is always in the right place and leads God's people, present with them, present with our God, and brings us into that presence. Something we need to think and consider as we evaluate and look at our own hearts, as we think about following our king. Think about what our king has secured and what he has done for us. Do we want to follow and emulate the life of David? The one who is content to not be near God's people. The one who is content to not pursue or desire or to go after the presence of God. Or do we delight in and take advantage of the benefits that Jesus has secured for us, bringing us into God's people, bringing us into a relationship with Him where He's always present with us, bringing us into a relationship where we can come into the very presence of God. Do we long for that? Do we pursue that? Do we desire that? Because we also need to be aware, as David failed to understand, sometimes... When you're in the wrong place, it can affect your heart. People with pacemakers understand this. You get in the wrong place with a pacemaker and things can go wrong with the old ticker. Cell phones, magnets, some of them in the past, I think microwaves, there used to be signs up. You have to be concerned. If you get in the wrong place and around the wrong things, it can affect what's going on in your heart and it won't thrive. It'll begin acting up, not doing what it's supposed to. We see the same thing here. David being in the wrong place begins to affect his heart. And it's not functioning rightly because the true king should be the one who is in the right place. The true king should also be the one who has the right heart. God warned His kings about this. He instructed them about this. Look back over in Deuteronomy 17. We've gone back to this passage multiple times because this is the instructions that God gave His people to the type of king they were to look for and the rules and the guidelines for how this king was to conduct himself. Look in verse 18 of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy and listen to what God says and what he warns to his king. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh as God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You see, the... The way that you make sure, David, that your heart is in the right place is by being present with the one who has the ability and the power to change and orient and correct and restore and make hearts alive. You encounter God, David, in His Word. You encounter God by going into His presence through the means that He has provided. And the result will be that your heart reflects the heart of your God. But here we see that David does not have the right heart. And although where his heart was to be was not above his brothers, Deuteronomy 17 tells us David, being far from the presence of God, being in the wrong place, now we see his heart showing that it is not functioning and working rightly. Notice how often it's repeated this phrase about what David does to his brothers. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. You see here, David... We'll cover some of this a little later. In the desire to to cover and deal with his sin and his shame and what he has done, views Uriah as being expendable. He views himself as being over Uriah. Not him for the sake of Uriah, but Uriah for the sake of David. I'm willing to sacrifice this guy. If it means something better for me. And the author here repeats this over and over about the death of Uriah. Look again in verse 17. Uriah the Hittite also died. In verse 21, again, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In verse 24, And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then in verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. Dead, dead, dead. Why? Because of David. Why? Because David's heart was in the wrong place. Because David exalted himself and saw himself as being more important than Uriah the Hittite. Uriah could have easily found this in the pagan nation he came from. This is the way the kings of the world act. But for some reason, this Hittite has said, I want to be brought in and be a part of the people of the living God. And Uriah converts He leaves the false god that he and his family and his people and his country had been worshiping and he gives his allegiance to the God of Israel and to his king. And what does his king do but betray him and slay him? Just like the kings of the nations. Sound familiar? David's acting a lot like Saul. Saul. Who was very eager at any time to throw a spear or to send David to kill a hundred Philistines for his daughter, thinking that they would slay and bring him to his end. David's heart is in the wrong place. David views himself as being more important than Uriah, but it's not just that. Notice in verse 17, "...and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David." among the people fell it's not just Uriah other people would die this comes up again in verse 24 with the, the account some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also David seems to think he's more important than any and everyone it doesn't matter who must die everyone is expendable because I am the most important. His heart has been elevated above every single one of his brothers, and I am willing to hurt and harm and wound and maim and kill anyone if it results in benefit for me. The good news for you the good news for me, the good news for Uriah, the good news for David, is that God's true king doesn't act like this. God's true king, his heart, is always in the right place. His heart is always right. Look over in Philippians chapter 2. Is Paul, one of Jesus' Authorized Spokespersons tells us this about Jesus. He's going to use the language of mind, but the concept is still the same. Listen to how the mind or the heart of Jesus is in stark contrast with that of David and how Jesus fulfills what we saw in Deuteronomy 17. Look in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the royal title there. King Jesus, the anointed one. Have the mind of your king. Have the heart of your king. Look to how your king works and acts and responds and dealt with you. And in light of how he lives and what he did on your behalf, do that to others. What did our king do? What did King Jesus do for you and for me? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Hmm. And like David, who decided to live in luxury and remain in the temple, I mean in the palace, Jesus said, I'm going to leave the glory of heaven to come and be present with my people. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Jesus rules and He reigns and He sits on the throne of our God forever and ever and ever. Why? Because He's the perfect King. He is the king who has the right heart. Unlike David, who thought that he was better than his servants, King Jesus says, I'm going to become one of my servants. Unlike David, who planned and thought, how can I get another to die for me? King Jesus says, what can I do? And how will I redeem my people? It will be by me dying for them. Unlike David who said, I'm willing to sacrifice another and to find another to give their life for me to cover up my sin and my shame. What do we think King Jesus doing? King Jesus says, I will give my life for my people so that I can cover up and deal with their sin and their shame. You see how Jesus far surpasses David. How Jesus shows us the heart of our God, how he is the perfect king. David is showing us his deep, deep need of a Savior and a Redeemer. And the good news is that Jesus came to die and redeem and give His life for sinners like David and sinners like you and me. Here, we see so far in 2 Samuel 11, God is showing us that the the true and forever king must be the one who's in the right place. The true and forever king must be the one who has the right heart. And lastly, the true and forever king must be the one who has right eyes. Look at the last part, the last verse, sentence of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. Uh, That language of displeased, the original language, it it, it would be phrased like this. The thing that David had done was evil in the eye of God. It was evil. From, From God's perspective, what David had done was evil. That was how God saw it. That was the eyes through which God viewed all that had gone on. And God's eyes see rightly. And what God has said is this is evil. And what has David done? Well, David's broken almost all of the Ten Commandments here. First, he's you think of the commandment, shall honor your father and your mother. It's not just talking about parents, but it's talking about anybody who is in a position of authority and care over another. Not just should, the one, should one submit to those who are in authority over them, but the one who exercises that authority should do so for the benefit of the others. And what do we see David doing here? He violates that. He misleads Bathsheba. He misleads and... Ends up destroying Uriah and other servants. He tempts and brings Joab into also this plot for murder. Murder again, taking the life of another. Adultery is happening here. As David finds out, who is this woman? She's the wife, the wife of Uriah. Wife should have been enough. But when you tack on at the end that it's Uriah the Hittite, do you know who Uriah was? Not just any random guy that David had never seen of or heard. This is one of David's mighty men. The list of a special 30 guys who were valiant and dedicated and committed to their king. This man was a close friend of David's. And he throws all that away. He lies about it. He covets another man's wife over and over. It goes completely against the law that David was to apply to his heart, that he wouldn't raise his heart up against others, that he would love his God deeply and he would love his neighbors as himself. Yet here, over and over, it shows us David's intention to disregard all that notice how David sees things look back up at what he says the eyes through which David is viewing this circumstance, this matter look in verse 25 David said to the messenger thus shall you say to Joab do not let this matter displease you same language don't let it be evil in your eye what matter is David talking about? Just the loss in the battlefield, or as it seems, it fits in with what God is saying at the end of the passage. We're viewing the whole thing and where David's heart is, and what he's viewing and what he's seeing. He is content to call what is evil good because it's benefited him. He's gotten what he's wanted. He's covered it up. David's all good. The king of Israel is looking at what the creator of all things has said is evil and he is the one who is calling it good? This is what we should expect to find among the nations, David. Not among the chosen people of Israel. Not among those that God has redeemed to be a blessing to the world. You are to be the ones who emulate and live out a life that shows what redeemed and restored humanity looks like, where you love God deeply and you love your neighbor. But David has thrown all this away and he looks directly at what God has said is evil. And David says, "Eh, don't let it displease you. Don't let it seem evil. That's common in our world today. To think of the the things that God says are a sin and an assault against His character and who we are as humanity gets distorted in our world and calling those things good. To rebel against God is to be celebrated and proclaimed and laughed at and glorified to find our identity in, or to, to deem and proclaim that these are rights that we must have. The right to rebel against our God. And if you tell us we can't rebel against God, then you are the evil one. But our God tells us He is the true King. And it really doesn't matter how you see things and what your eyes are seeing. You want to know whether your eyesight is good or not? Measure it up with the standard. That's why they have them in the eye doctor. It's the same chart everywhere. There's a big E at the top. And it's the same size on all of them. When I was in high school, guess what? The big E was blurry. The big one. Now, I could have chosen to say, oh man, your sign's off. Let me bring my own in that I can see. And then we'll just say, i got perfect vision. But that's not how it works. Because regardless of what standard I'm measuring up against, if it's not compared to the standard, it's wrong. I needed correction. My eyes needed to be changed. So I got laser surgery. And then I could see correctly. I could see rightly. The big E and the little one was clear. God has said, do you want to see rightly? Do you want to recognize and call your sin the evil that it is? And not be afraid of doing that? The way you do that is come to me. Come to my King. Because Jesus isn't afraid to identify and view sin for the evil and wickedness that it is. How do we know that? Because Jesus recognizes that sin is so sinful that it necessitated the death of the Son of God to deal with it. How evil are you? How evil am I? Apart from Christ, we are sin. But the good news of the Gospel is that the King who sees rightly became sin for us. And He knew no sin. And in Him, we become the righteousness of God. Because our King, Jesus, is the perfect one who is always in the right place, who always has the right heart, and who sees with the right eyes. Do you know this King? Are you hoping in Him? Look in faith and submit yourself to King Jesus that you might find forgiveness and wholeness and life that He offers to His people. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You for 2 Samuel, where You show us, sometimes by comparison, here by contrast, the beauty of Your forever King. Jesus, we thank You that You lived perfectly. You died in our place. You rose. You're coming again. Turn our hearts to You. May our hope be only in Christ, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen.